0: Amen, if you would, please turn to the book of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 6, and we'll be reading verses 10 to 12 this morning. Ecclesiastes chapter 6, verse 10, this concludes the previous section which dealt with money and desire. This also functions as a hinge towards what's coming in chapter 7. So Ecclesiastes chapter 6, verse 10. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity... And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? This is the word of the Lord. Father, we pray that you would speak your good word to us and that you would fulfill the purposes of your word in our lives. God, this is not something that I can do. I am powerless to take this word and plant it deep in hearts and cause it to grow. And so, God, we are dependent upon you to do this work in our hearts through your divine word. And so we pray for that good work in Jesus' name. Amen. we sometimes sometimes have trouble accepting the way that things are because we have a sort of vision or an ideal of how things should be. We have this picture, we have this idea that our lives should look like this or the world should look like this or I should be like that, but when things don't line up in the way that we think that they should be, well, at least the frustration, anger, We fail to accept the reality of things because sometimes we have unmet selfish desires. Sometimes it's because we have misguided or unrealistic expectations. Sometimes we fail to accept the way that things are because we have perhaps bought into the illusions of the world and its ideal of what the good life is. Perhaps we have preferred lies over the truth. Sometimes we fail to accept the way that things are because we consider ourselves sort of enlightened individuals who think that they know what is best. So if you've ever found yourself being disappointed or angry or frustrated because the way that things are are not the way that you think that they should be, well, God's Word has something for you this morning. But before we get into our passage I think there are some things some things that are help I think would be helpful for us as Christians as we are followers of Christ as we sort of live in this world as as pilgrims seeking our homeland that is in heaven there are some things to sort of remember some things to to affirm and to understand well that I think will help us as we continue to go about our lives and face the different challenges that come our way. So first, let's consider the divine God. Now, this divine God is a is creator of all things. John Frame in his systematic theology, defines creation as an act of God alone by which, for his own glory, he brings into existence everything in the universe, things that had no existence prior to his creative word. So everything that we see, all the created world, is created by God and by God alone. He did not need anyone for it. He created all by himself. And the fact that he created all things points also to his authority. If he created all things, and that means that everything is in his hand. And the book of Genesis tells us that God spoke everything into existence. So it's through his word that everything came into existence. As we read elsewhere in the scriptures that God, in his word, when he sends out his word, it always accomplishes the purposes that God has set. It never returns to him empty. So God created everything through his word, and because he created everything, he has absolute authority over all things. And then as we look to John chapter 1, just sort of a commentary on Genesis chapter 1, it's C we see here that this authority also belongs to Jesus Christ. John chapter 1, verse 1 tells us that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and that the Word was God, that is, Jesus. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus is the divine Word through which everything was created. And that God's Word never returns to him empty. and Because Jesus is the divine Word through which everything was created, all authority also belongs to Jesus Christ. In thinking about creation being an act of God alone, Psalm 146 shows us how does this personally apply to our lives. In Psalm 146, verse three, it tells us, "Put not your trust in princes, and a son of man, in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish." Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever. We trust in God, God alone. Why should we trust in God alone? Because he created the heavens and the earth. Because he is powerful, because he is omnipotent, because everything is under his absolute control and authority. Yes, we trust in man to a certain degree, but we do not trust in man for our ultimate salvation because when man dies, so do his plans. But God's plans are always there and are eternal because God himself is eternal. And so we put our trust in the God who created the heavens and the earth. And then also with regards to a personal application of our lives when it comes to the divine creator, Job 38 verse 4, God, coming to meet with Job, asks, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Job, seeking an audience with God, intending to bring God to court, to sort of bring answers to Job's questions, Job, God finally shows up. It begins to question Job, Where were you, Job? When I laid the foundation of the earth, in other words, God is appealing to his authority that comes from his creating all things and essentially says, Job, you are not a man with some kind of authority to think that you can ask such questions and demand answers. What I have created, I have created. And elsewhere, many places in the scriptures we see that God has authority over all things because he created all things. And we see that divine authority because he does control many things, from the animals to the elements. We see in the ten plagues, from the controlling of gnats and frogs to the controlling of the seas to the control of the skies. We see this, for example, in the story of the renegade prophet Jonah, when God commanded a plant to come and give shade to to Jonah under the sun, and then caused a worm to also devour the plant. We see that same authority and control in the life of Jesus, who commands the fish to come to the nets of the disciples after they had spent hours the night before trying to catch fish and caught nothing. We see the authority of Jesus over all things, over all created things, when he calms the storms at the sea. And we see that Jesus also has such authority, even over life and death, when he raises the the dead Lazarus back to life. So God is the creator of all things. Because he is the creator of all things, he owns everything. In the Bible, specifically in the Old Testament, when someone names something, it it, it speaks to the person's ownership. I named this because this belongs to me. The fact that God created everything, including man, a named man means that essentially we belong to God. We're under his authority. And because God has absolute authority, he gets to establish who will reign for him. Psalm 2 tells us that God sets his own king to rule over the nation's. This king, that is Jesus Christ, it tells in Isaiah that he is the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, the prince of peace, on whose government is the shoulders, is on his shoulders, and that this government will be everlasting. Hebrews one eight tells us, but of the Son, he says, your throne, that is to the Son, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, the scepter of uprightness, is the scepter of your kingdom." So King Jesus, not only because everything was created through him and for him, but also because he is the king of kings, is in control over all things. And we are under his authority, and so therefore we must know our place. This is what I think the teacher of Ecclesiastes is getting at in verse 10. He says, whatever has come to be has already been named. That is, whatever is, is. Whatever reality is, is just is. And it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. What you see before you, what is, it is what it is, because God has determined it because God has orchestrated it, because God designed it, because God allowed it or permitted it. You and I may have a particular vision of our lives or how we, are personally, how we personally should be. It might become frustrating because we're not this way or because we're not that, because we haven't done this, because our lives will look like this. But ultimately, our lives under, are under the authority of God. And God has permitted it to be this way or God has created you to be a certain way for his own purposes. And again, that might lead some to frustration, to anger, perhaps to a questioning of God. Perhaps you might wish that you could bring God to court and ask him some questions. Why did you allow this? Why am I like this and not like that? But there's something else I think we have to affirm, something that the Scriptures teach us that will also enhance our understanding of this passage in Ecclesiastes, and that is God's goodness. That God is not only the creator of all things, but that God is good. He is good. Now, when we think of good, we think of someone's actions, what the person does. These things are good, and so therefore, we can determine whether or not this person is good, and we tend to think of God in the same way. He is good because he does this. He is good because he is gracious. He is good because he shows me mercy and grace because he is provided, and surely, that is true, but the goodness of God means a lot more than that. When the Bible affirms that God is good, it's speaking to his essence. It's speaking to his nature, so that if even God, that if God Had not created anything at all, he would still be good. That God is good means that he is the perfect sum, standard, and source of that which is conducive to well being, virtuous, beneficial, and beautiful. God is the source of all that is good. If we know how to be good, is because we are created in God's image, because he himself is good. Anything that leads to is conducive or bears whatever is virtuous or, or the well-being of others or is beneficial has a source in God because God himself is good. He defines what is good. Not the world, not us. God defines what is good. And we see in the Scriptures the goodness of God displayed in two specific ways, two vivid ways. One is in creation itself. Creation testifies to the goodness of God. God did not need to create anything at all, but the fact that God created all things shows that He, in fact, is good. Not only that, but we read in Genesis that God created a good world, a world without sin. The reason why there is sin in the world is because of man, not because of God. But he created a world without sin. He created a world for his own enjoyment, his own pleasure, but he also created a good world for the enjoyment of his creatures, to the people that he created in his own image. And in this world, where there was no sin, if you can imagine it, there was a way that man could actually enjoy the good creation of God in a way that you and I cannot do so today and that man and God had a relationship with one another that wasn't distant by sin. So creation itself shows us that this God is good. Another way in which we see the goodness of God so vividly displayed, more powerfully displayed in his creation, is in God's redemption. If you want to know how good God is, just look at the world, look at the created world, look at the stars of the sky, look at the heavens above, look at everything that's on the ground, look at everything, and you can see that God is good. But look at also the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because this most vividly displays how good God is. John three sixteen, 16, a passage familiar to many of us, tells us, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son so that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The gospel, Jesus Christ himself shows how good God is because we were sinners, renegade, rebellious, darkness. John chapter 3 tells us that the people love the darkness rather than the light. It shows our affection, our affinity, our tendency to whatever is dark, to whatever is evil, to whatever is not good. A preference for sin and that sin then demands a justice of God, the judgment of God and Jesus because he is God. in order to show the goodness of God, comes into the world and dies on the cross and rises again from the dead so that whoever believes in Jesus receives forgiveness of their sins and receives eternal life with God. And in this way, we see how good God is. Galatians 4, verse 4 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. God did not have to. He could have simply just left us in our sin and to suffer the penalty of our sins, but instead he sent his Son into the world to redeem us and even go so far as to adopt us as his sons and daughters. The Puritan Stephen Charnock speaks of the goodness of God when he writes that God was desirous to hear Jesus groaning and see him bleeding, that we might not groan under his frowns and bleed under his wrath. He spared not him that he might spare us refused not to strike him that he might be well-pleased with us, drenched his sword in the blood of his Son that it might not be forever wet with ours, but that his goodness might, be, might forever triumph in our salvation. He was willing to have his Son made man and die rather than man should perish who had delighted to ruin himself. Christ Jesus is the strongest and most vivid display of the goodness of God. So when we struggle with the way that things are in our lives, when we wish that things were different in our lives, let us remember how good God is. God never ceases to be good. It is in his nature, Jesus cannot help but be good, especially towards his people. God is a divine creator and he is good. And this is essential for us to remember and to affirm because doing so helps us as Christians. Doing so helps us in times of turmoil and distress because without doing so, it's like sending a soldier into the battlefield who has, doesn't, hasn't been trained or does not even understand the basic fundamentals of survival, who doesn't even know how to load a weapon, For us to understand that God is the creator of all things and that God is good, arms us with everything that we need to battle our flesh and sin, the temptations of the world and the illusions of the world that gives us this false representation of what the good life is. So then having considered the divine God, that he is a creator and that he is good, so then we can turn to our texts. And lastly, consider finite man. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? Again, this passage speaks to God's reality. Whatever we see before us is because God has allowed it or permitted it or orchestrated it or designed it for his good purposes, but also for the purposes of his people. And this passage seeks to bring us face-to-face with our limitations. Whatever created reality is, we can probably change some things, but we are not able to change everything because we are finite, because we are not God, though sometimes we wish that we could be. The passage, I think, is intended to help us to just accept reality for what it is. To accept what we cannot change. And that it makes no sense to try to dispute with God. You cannot bargain with God. You cannot change his mind. There is no argument that you can come before God with that he hasn't already thought of. And just like Job, God is not obliged to answer our questions. And that we, there's no authority inherent in us that deserves an answer. Romans 9.20 says, But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Isaiah 45.9 says, Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or oh, your work has no handles? Right, sometimes we will try to answer God, or to answer back to God, or to question God. Sometimes we might even go so far as to try to strive with God and wrestle with God. The scriptures tell us it's vanity. There is no point. All that we can do sometimes is just accept things for the way they are, and that we are in no position to tell God what to do. Furthermore, the passage also seems to tell us that to even question God is to presume that you and I know better. Verse 12, For who knows what is good? For who knows what is good for man while he lives a few days of his life, which he passes like a shadow that grounds what came before in 10 and 12. And it concludes, For who can tell what man will be after him under the sun? In other words, we have this idea, this vision of what the good life is like, what our lives should look like, what we personally should be like, what the world should be like. But the passage tells us, who are we to be able to define what good is? If you ask one person, another person, two different people, what good is, they'll both have different interpretations of what good is. If you look at the world, the world has different ways of interpreting what good is, and it's always... Contrary to the Bible's picture of the good life. Not only that, but also says that you and I cannot even know what will come after us. But God does. God knows what will come after us. He determines the end from the beginning. He knows what will come. He knows what will happen because he has determined it because he causes it, because he permits it. And knowing that information then determines how he then he acts in our lives today to bring about the most good in our lives. But you and I don't have that kind of understanding. You and I don't have that kind of knowledge to be able to determine what is good for us today. So we don't have all the facts. We don't have all the knowledge to be able to determine what actually is good If you remember the story of Lot, Lot and his uncle Abraham, they had acquired so much stuff and they finally decided to separate and Abraham gave his nephew the choice. Choose out where you will go and I'll go in the opposite direction. And Lot looks at one direction, right? It's green, flourishing. Look at this wonderful city. So many people. This was like a great place to reside in. And he makes it his home and come to find out it's actually the home of many heinous and grievous sinners full of our Landish, outrageous sins that even attracted the attention of God. And God ultimately decimated the city in fire and sulfur. Lot had an idea of what the good life was. This looks like a really good place. But he was so wrong. Sometimes we can be really wrong. So then if we must then just accept reality for what it is, accept that God is creator and what he has given to us, he has given to us and nothing more and nothing less, what then do we do? How then should we live? First, we look to his word. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. The very great promises here in this passage is pointing us to God's word. That is through the great promises of this divine word that we become partakers of the divine nature. Escaping the corruption that is in the world and its illusions of what the good life is. And embrace a new life, a new life in Christ. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 tells us, All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The Bible's principal concern for your life and my life is that we would be complete, that we would be equipped, essentially is that we would be made into the image of Jesus Christ. Is that your concern? Do you share in that concern? Is your desire to be made more into the image of Jesus Christ or is your concern for other things, your ideal vision of what your good life should be like? The Scripture has been given to us so that we might be equipped for every good work and made complete and bear the image of Jesus Christ who died for us. The Word of God is the instruction manual of the Christian. It teaches us what is the good life. We are to look at what the Bible teaches us about how we are to live our lives and take the world and see, does it line up with the world? And if it doesn't, then we are called to obey God and His Word. The Word of God is our tutor, and we are its students. So we have to look to the Word to help us to see whether or not our lives are conforming to what the Bible says our lives should look like. If it's not, then we must, it's calling us to repent and make whatever changes need to be made. Secondly, we must, how then should we live? We must accept God's designs. We must accept things for the way they are. You might wish you were a little bit different. You might wish that things were different in your life. But you must trust that God is creator, that God, who is good, has made you in the way that he has made you and that has given to you in your life certain things because he designed it that way. And I know that it's not always easy. Sometimes we wish that we had the power to make changes, we don't always have the power or the authority to do that. And so we must just simply accept God's designs and remember that God is good. And it certainly is always easy to say that God is good when things are going well. It's easy to say when, that God is good when your health is great. It's easy to say that God is good when there's money in the bank account. It's to say that God is good when work is going well. It's easier to say that God is good when marriage is great and children are obedient and life is just going splendid. But anybody can say God is good when everything is well and great. But the, what really determines those who are after just God's gifts And those who are after God himself and desires more of God are those who are able to say that God is good when things are not so good. Can you say that God is good when you've been laid off? Can you say that God is good when you're not sure how you're going to feed your family the next day? Can you say that God is good when there's trials in your life? Can you say that God is good when you've suffered another miscarriage? you say that God is good when you cannot have children? Can you say that God is good when you or his loved one has been diagnosed with a terminal illness? Can you say that God is good in moments like that? It is precisely in these moments that we need a robust understanding of and a faith in the goodness of God. was god not good when he gave paul this thorn in the flesh to humble him to keep him from becoming so prideful because of the surpassing visions that god had given to him was not god good in that moment what if god what what, what if god desirous of you brings distress into your life in order to draw you closer to him What if God, wanting you to become more or conform to the image of Jesus Christ, introduces affliction like an unwanted visitor who barges the door of our home? What if God, knowing your besetting sins, introduces or brings into your life affliction and distress in order to wean you away from those besetting sins What if God, in answer to your prayers, tests your faith in order to strengthen it? That great hymn writer, John Newton, maybe you've heard this hymn before. If you haven't, I encourage you to go home after this and just look up this hymn. This hymn is called I Ask the Lord That I Might Grow. It begins, I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace. Might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. What a good prayer. I mean, what a Christian prayer. I ask the Lord that I might grow, that I might grow in faith, that I might grow in love that I might grow in every grace, that I might know more of his personal salvation, that I might seek more earnestly his face. Jesus, give me more of yourself. What a wonderful, what a Christian prayer. But then as you continue through the hymn, you see that this person who makes this prayer is actually perplexed. He's surprised because God had seemed to answer those prayers in ways that he didn't expect or even wanted. Instead, what he gets are trials. What he gets instead is distress. As He begins to ask, ask God, why? I didn't ask for this. Why is this happening? And then the hymn concludes, this is God speaking, says these inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayest find thy all in me. God sometimes employs these trials, these temptations, these struggles in our lives, perhaps because we've been, we've been so self-centered, because we've been trusting too much in ourselves, perhaps, perhaps because we have been looking much more to the pleasures of this world and our personal sins than finding our satisfaction and joy in Jesus Christ so God introduces these things into our lives so that we may be less attached to ourselves so we may be less attached to this world and find our all in Christ and in this way God shows that he is good it might not be in the way that we think he should be but he is good in the ways that he needs to be for the sake of our lives Sometimes, in answer to our, to our prayers, God will disrupt our lives with affliction. Sometimes, He will slacken the chains of the, sound, the hounds of hell in order to distress us. Sometimes, it means permitting the devil to come at us with his ill schemes. But listen, it is never, ever, ever to ruin you or to bring about your destruction. Rather, it's to humble our pride is to wean you from worldly attachments. Perhaps you have slackened in your pursuit of the the kingdom of Christ, and so God intends to re-energize you to pursue the kingdom of Christ with all of your might. Maybe it's so that you might find your greatest joy and satisfaction in Him and in Him alone. God designs affliction, and when you understand that, you know that every single one of them is intentional. And when you believe that God is good, then you know that even such designs are intended for good. Just as Joseph's slavery in Egypt sold into his brothers, and at the, end of, at the end he comes to the conclusion that what was intended for evil, God intended for good, so that many others may be spared and saved. Or even Peter's sifting, Jesus had to Simon, to Peter, Simon, Satan has asked for you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your face should not fail. But when you are returned, strengthen your brothers. Sometimes the Lord allows affliction into our lives as a means, as a way of our being able then to encourage others. And that was the purpose of the intent behind Peter's sifting that he may then go on to encourage and strengthen his brothers. We may not be able to change a lot of things in our lives, things that we wish that we could change, but God designed them for a purpose. And we may not always know his purposes, but what we do know is that God is good and that he always intends to do good for his people. This passage brings us face-to-face with our finiteness. But when you believe in a God who created all things and who in his very being is good, you don't have to be afraid of anything. Because even in affliction, God is good. He cannot help but be good. And you can always trust that he will be good, even in affliction. And he intends all things for your good and for his glory. Amen. Let's pray. But Father, it is it is sometimes difficult for us to remember that you are a good God. There are so many things that we experience that sometimes lead us to question whether or not God is good. Perhaps we become desirous of the things of this world. Perhaps what we envision for our lives just doesn't, is not what you envision for our lives, and we begin to question and ask. And when we question, we fail to accept what you have given to us. Lord, but you are a good God, and you are always good to your people. Lord, in those hard moments of our lives, let us remember the gospel of Christ and let us there be reminded of how good God is. Help us to remember that even in the things that we struggle with in our lives that you intend them for our good. And Lord, give us the courage, give us the courage to pray that you might give us more of you, that we might be conformed to the image of Christ, that we may have a growing appetite for the Lord Jesus. Prayers like that are daring because You answer those prayers in a way that you have determined would be best to answer them. And it may not always be in the way that we desire or we think, but give us the courage to pray such prayers and allow you to answer them in the way that you see fit. Lord, you are good. And you are always good to your people. And we thank you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.